there's this idea that medicine is this sort of like objective neutral thing. And I don't buy it. It's not neutral at all. There are values in Western medicine before the question of evidence is the question of values. And what are your values as a parent? What are your values as a human being? Do you value autonomy? Do you value the natural order? Do you value the way that your child was born? Do you want to teach them as a parent that they make their own decisions about their body? Do you want to teach them that if someone's bigger and stronger than them, that they can hold them down and touch them sexually in ways they don't consent to? This is the first day of their life. This is the first lesson that they're going to experience in the world. Who is a parent? What do you want to communicate that your values are? I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugene McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. Je m'appelle Rick Safris, et c'est le podcast du Gidecolo Holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back. It's the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Riley, MD, fellow of ACOG, fellow of AHPM, dual board certified physician, and I've got this great podcast. Well, at least I think it's great. I hope you like it. If something that you've heard on this show has touched you or improved the lives of somebody you love, do us a solid First, share this episode or any episode that's touched you with people that are important to you. The more people that hear this show, the more downloads we get, the higher we rise in the rankings, the more of myself I can continue to put into this project. The other thing that's super simple, guys, is to go into that supercomputer in your hands right now that you're listening to and go to Apple Podcasts, pop in a five-star rating, write a couple of nice words if you like, but even without that, that's great. The more ratings we get, the more five-star ratings we get, the greater impact that my show's going to have. My guest today is Brendan Murata. Brendan is a filmmaker. He's an author. His latest film is American Circumcision. It won multiple awards. It was available on Netflix. I don't believe it is anymore, but you can pay a couple bucks and watch it online. It is fantastic. Brendan really tries to take an unbiased approach to this topic of circumcision, which is hard to do. It's a very polarizing topic, as many topics are nowadays that are worth talking about. But he does a nice job of bringing in various experienced people, namely physicians, policymakers, and thoughtful people on both sides of the argument. But of course, the resounding conclusion of American circumcision, which is the same conclusion I came to in residency, was that this is a completely unnecessary procedure. You should be very, very curious to any thoughtful person as to why this has become such a standardized practice for our young little men here in the United States. And outside of the certain Jewish philosophies or communities, I should say, we're the only nation that does this in a standardized way. It's really, really interesting. And a big part of it is how we counsel couples about this. We emphasize there's all these benefits to doing it. Well, those benefits haven't played out in the research. The data has been manipulated in such a way, as it often is, in order to justify doing this procedure. But as Brendan and others have said, this seems to be like a cure looking for a disease. Because most of the data that's been collected on this that is in support of this sort of hygienic benefits of circumcision 
they were really poorly done. And we're going to talk about this in the episode today. Brendan is also the author of The Intactivist Guidebook and Children's Justice. He's a speaker far and wide. And I really loved this conversation. I think you're going to love it too. But before we do, we have a couple sponsors. I have listened to my fan base and I've shortened these blurbs a little bit just so you can get right to the meat of it. Our first sponsor is BirthFit. BirthFit was started by Lindsay Matthews Cantu. She's a very interesting woman. She has started this company called BirthFit, which provides pregnancy and postpartum support specific lifestyle programming. They do nervous system supported general strength and conditioning. They do human movement foundations. They do core and pelvic floor basics. They really provide a comprehensive prenatal training program. Everything's done online. You get a BirthFit certified pregnancy and postpartum specific trainer and you get to work. They also have this incredible online community called the B community. This is where fitness, education, and connection meet. It's a community made by women for women. And in that community, you're going to get your questions answered. You can share your experiences and insights. This is really what it's about. We live in such a siloed way in our life. And this really puts you in touch with other people that are in the same life path as you. You can try out their B community for one month free by going to birthfit.com, use code BELOVED, you'll get that one month free access. And while you're there, you're also going to get a whole bunch of webinars from renowned coaches and scientists and doctors and experts in the field to help you really dial in your lifestyle to the best of your resources ability. So go to birthfit.com, use code BELOVED, you'll get one month free access to the B community. Full Well Fertility is also supporting this episode. If you walk down your grocery store aisle and you start looking at labels, it can become very, very confusing. Part of the confusion is that they all are crap. <laughs> There's really not a lot of good options out there with prenatal vitamins. In fact, my wife and I did not take prenatal vitamins in our second pregnancy. We were eating a lot of organ meats and really trying to nourish ourselves with food. But had I known about Full Well, that would have been very, very different. You know, this is not a replacement for a healthy lifestyle, but it certainly is a good insurance policy to make sure you and your baby are as nourished as possible. So if you want to try out Full Well, they all have a whole bunch of great products. Go to fullwellfertility.com. Use code BELOVED10. You'll save 10%. I don't recommend any other prenatal vitamin out there except for this one. So if you're pregnant, if you're even thinking about getting pregnant, you owe it to yourself to get the best around. So Full Well Fertility is where you can find that. This episode is also brought to you by Organifi. Organifi has a laundry list of incredible products. They have this incredible cacao harmony blend, which has functional mushrooms. It has cacao. It has all these other adaptogenic herbs specifically designed for women who have abnormal periods, who have pain related to their periods, or they just want to continue to ride the rhythms of nature, which comes for women 13 times per year, this cycling, what we call the menstrual cycle. In addition to that, they have their green juice, their red juice, their gold latte, so many great options. If you want to try Organifi's product lineup, all of which is non-GMO, USDA organic, glyphosate-free, gluten-free, go to Organifi.com slash Beloved or use code Beloved and you'll save 20% on your purchase. It's very generous. And then last but not least, buy optimizers. Buy optimizers. I would consider them the top supplement company in the world. I mean, of course, we're not in the prenatal category here, but I only align myself with the best of the best. And Bioptimizers has proven time and time again to consciously and intentionally make the best supplements available. I really, really love their magnesium breakthrough. I take two capsules every night before bed, 30 to 45 minutes before bed with a glass of lukewarm water. It's structured, it's filtered, it's green-filled, you know, green-filled water. It's incredible. 
It helps me get into sleep quicker. It helps me stay asleep. And then when I wake up, I feel refreshed. I'm ready to hit the ground running. So if you want to try their magnesium breakthrough, which is distinct from other types of magnesium because there are actually seven different varieties of magnesium so that you can make sure that you are maximizing your intake based on what your body needs and the ability of your gut to differentiate between the types and choose one over the other. If you only take one type of magnesium and your body can't use it, then you're just wasting your money. Mag Breakthrough has seven distinct types, and you can try any of Bioptimizer's products by going to bioptimizers.com slash holistic OBGYN, or just use code BELOVED at checkout. You'll save yourself 10%. All right, guys, this is my conversation with Brendan Murata. I think you're going to love this one. Brendan, welcome to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. This is not a typical conversation that most people are expecting to hear from an OBGYN. I don't do surgery, so to speak, anymore, but when I was training as a resident, I didn't count them, but I did roughly 200 circumcisions. It was always the same. I'll talk about the procedure later, but I hadn't really thought much about the implications of this. And you've your work, your film is called American Circumcision. It's available, I believe, now on Amazon Prime and a couple other platforms. You can clarify that at the very end. And then you also have a book, I always mispronounce, The Intactivist Guidebook, How to Win the Game of Intactivism and End Circumcision. So we're going to be diving deep into the most common procedure, surgery performed in the United States, circumcision. Welcome to the show. Thank you. The latest, by the way, is called Children's Justice. So I just put out this year a book. Okay. Well, then I have to update my notes here. Oh, yeah. There it is. Yeah. Okay. Children's Justice. Okay. That's gotcha. all good. We'll definitely be sending as many people as we can your way to pick up some of your writing here. We're not going to do the typical, how did you get into circumcision? I don't know if anybody gets into circumcision. This is like something we're always hearing about, but maybe in the United States, not thinking deeply enough about when we're doing a commonplace procedure that I have come to learn and even was questioning in residency has little, if any, medical benefits. So where would you like to start? (laughs) What's the biggest issue right now that you're facing with this work you've been putting out? And there are so many places I could start. And, and part of the challenge with that question is that this affects so much. And it's one of those things where, you know, sexuality, masculinity, your personal beliefs, your, the way that you see yourself, all of that is influenced by this issue. And, you know, I think the biggest challenge, because if, if I'm really being honest, the biggest challenge I have is fear. And and not even necessarily my fear, but like that there are a lot of people who are really afraid to talk about this issue. Even people who've been working on the issue a long time, I'm noticing are experiencing this because there are so many cultural landmines that it touches on where if you misspeak or you say something that triggers someone in the wrong way, we have a culture that's much more prone to canceling people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways, the conversation is easier because we're supposed to be open about our sexuality and we're supposed to be comfortable talking about social justice issues and the concept of bodily autonomy. And at the same time, I think that there is a bit of gaslighting around that sort of cultural of, oh yeah, we want you to talk about these things. It's almost similar to the 100 flowers that Mao proposed in communist China. Like, yes, yes, be open about what you think about these things. But if you're open about them with a perspective that is different than the dominant culture, 
man, they're going to come down. So be open. We want you to talk about it, but we want you to talk about it in a certain way. And if you don't talk about it in the way that we want you to talk about it, the issue of circumcision is often framed in the dominant culture in two ways. It's framed through the lens of medical risks and benefits. What are the risks and benefits? And it's framed through culture of like, well, what's your personal cultural feelings? And I think that both of these are first word that came to mind was evil. It's probably not the exact right word, but there's a way in which that that language and that discourse obscures what's really going on. So with anything else that would involve touching the genitals of a child, we would not talk about it in risks and benefits. We would talk about it in terms of trauma or good and evil. In other words, what are you actually doing to this child? And is this a good thing for the child or is this a bad thing for the child? It's not a, you know, we weigh the risks and benefits. And even medical organizations that promote circumcision have written academic papers saying that the way that even they actually evaluate circumcision is not a purely medical risk benefit thing. It's actually cultural. In other words, the reason that people do circumcision is not any kind of medical benefits, many of which are false and fraudulent. And there's a lot of, you know, misinformation around But the reason that people will do is because of cultural conditioning. And so if the reason that people are holding down children and cutting off parts of their body is cultural conditioning, well, I think we should question that cultural conditioning. Right. The thing is that when you start doing that, you know, it brings up all of those feelings, all those triggers. Very often what the system that promotes genital cutting does is it frames it as a, especially the medical system, frames it as an individual parental decision. In other words, you know, parents decide, you know, what do you want for your child? Parents didn't actually make the system. I think that's another sort of piece of lie and gaslighting. You know, parents didn't train medical students in how to do it. Parents didn't build a sales funnel where if you're giving birth, that you're going to be asked, you know, eight to nine times, there's various surveys and studies that show to do this to their child. Parents didn't do the high pressure sales tactics. Parents didn't manufacture the devices that are used. Parents didn't create the larger culture and language around this. The role of parents is essentially signing a form at the end. And they say they just sort of sign off on it. And then they get scapegoated with this entire system. So what we have to do if we're actually looking at this is look at that larger system, look at the cultural conditioning. And I think when you frame it as a systemic issue, a lot of the individual triggers and stuff that come up get diffused because when the subject comes up, it's like, well, what about, you know, the feelings come around their body and their decisions as a parent. And it's not actually about that. And that's actually far smaller than all of this other stuff, which has been invisible to most people. You know, most people, if you ask someone like, um, you know, one of the common sort of myths or excuses that people say, well, it's cleaner. It's like, well, where did you hear that? What do you mean by that? Cleaner how? H- how do you evaluate the cleanliness of someone's body? Do you mean morally clean? Because the people who began circumcision as a medical practice in the United States certainly framed it that way. Do you think there's something dirty about sexuality? Where did, like, where did you hear that first? And people have no idea where these sort of sort of cultural myths came from. Sure. And that's the sign that there's conditioning and a system and something which has been invisible to them, which needs to become visible. So the challenge of this is that we're taking a lot that's in people's unconscious and making it conscious. And as that happens, there's going to be stuff there that people haven't dealt with. And I think this is even true of the people who are activists on this issue of like, okay, 
what's more important to you? Is it more important to you to speak the truth or to be liked? If someone tries to cancel you, like, what are you willing to do to make sure that children are safe? Yeah. All that stuff comes up too. And then you're like, you know, are you willing to be with the feelings that are there around this issue to actually know the truth and maybe get the information you need to make sure your children are safe? So those are the things that I see as the largest challenge. God, Brendan. I know I up, like I said, there's like 30 different topics in there that were all brought up. So, Well, in the 15 seconds that we spent chatting before we started recording, I think we both realized that we are both thoughtful about some of the same themes, perhaps in different worlds. But this is very much in my lane. And I have heard all of those things. It's so deeply ingrained that despite this being a surgery that we had to practice and be supervised doing 200 times, whatever I did it, I don't really remember ever having a conversation around like, is this something we should be doing? It's weird. Like it's a weird thing we do. And actually, before we continue, let me just describe to everybody out there who hasn't been to a circumcision exactly what happens. We take the baby from the mother within one day of life. It's usually 24 hours after, sometimes as early as 16 to 18 hours after. We take the baby, you know, hey, finish breastfeeding. We're going to take the baby for the circ. Great. The parents have been counseled. They have provided informed consent, which we'll talk about because it's a little challenging, this conversation of informed consent globally, but especially around this issue. And the counseling, by the way, that I provided, I'll tell everybody, was, well, it's very low risk, low risk, whatever that means. Risk is one of these nebulous terms that doesn't really mean much unless it's given context. It's low risk. And babies generally do really well. Dad, you can come with us and watch through a window about 100 feet from where we're doing the procedure. And you know some of the benefits are there's a decreased lifetime risk of HIV, STDs, and penile cancer. Those are the three things that we always talked about. Plus, it's easier to clean because you don't have to pull this foreskin back and you don't get stuff built up in there, et cetera, right? So it's a 15-second counseling. And the parents have already decided what they're going to do anyways. I'm just doing my due diligence, providing this language. They sign a form that says, you can do this surgery. We wheel the baby over to this room. We then undress the baby. We strap the baby's arms and legs down. It's very much, I don't like using some of this imagery, but it is very much like crucifixion style. We put a little drop of sugar on the baby's tongue. And if you can remember back to when you first had like a Sour Patch Kid, this kid goes into outer space like, whoa, total euphoria, I'm sure. Then we inject some local anesthetic to numb the nerves that supply innervation from the tip of the penis in that area that we're going to be cutting. We attach a clamp, we cut around the skin, we remove the clamp, we make sure that the bleeding is stopped. Kids almost always cry and scream. The bleeding is stopped. We wrap a little piece of lubricated gauze around it. We wrap the baby back up. We take the baby to mom. Baby did fine, mom. And they're on their way the next day, maybe out the door. So that's what a circumcision looks like. I have you know, fast forwarded through it, making it seem like it's completely benign, but it is a procedure. I was going to say that the cutting and crying part is about 15 to 20 minutes long. So however long we've gone in this podcast, you can imagine <laughs> a baby the duration screaming. of the pain. Yeah. 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 So in just looking at what that procedure entails, if we were to start separating the grass a little bit, then we can actually get into the weeds as to what's actually happening here. So let's talk about some of those health benefits. I know that you're going to feel like you're repeating yourself, but let's talk about STDs. I know you've done a really good job of illustrating why some of this research may not be helpful in providing informed consent, but tell everybody 
just for the sake of completion. What's going on with this literature? It does. It did. They concluded. They told me in their abstract that they concluded that this procedure was protective against STDs. Brendan, are you insane? So part of the challenge of going through all of these individual points is that it takes longer to refute bullshit than to create it. (laughs) In other words, if you want to generate a lot of false claims, that can be done very quickly. And going through the actual academic literature of each false claim and showing how the science is bad takes longer than to repeat that headline to a patient or as a news thing or just a thing that someone runs across in the culture. So I can go through them all individually, and it might be helpful to just pick one and go deep on that. So in terms of the STDs, the biggest claim there that's out now is, oh, it prevents HIV, right? Right. And one of the things that if you look at the history of circumcision, whatever the disease of the day is, that's what circumcision cured. So if you go all (laughs) the way back to the Victorian era, it cured masturbation because the Victorians thought like that was the awful thing. And that's actually how circumcision began as a medical practice in the United States was as a cure for masturbation. And then at one point it was epilepsy. And then at one point, you know, the Victorians thought that sexuality was very bad. So they were proud of the fact it reduced sexual sensation. And then of course, during the sexual revolution, ah, the STDs, that's where that claim comes around. And then later it's urinary tract infections. And then, you know, now HIV, because HIV is the big headline, right? And if you look at the studies that made that claim, they were done in sub-Saharan Africa, which is completely different environment than the United States. The group that was circumcised received counseling to use condoms. And so they use condoms at a higher rate. So right there, they're really just the studies of does one group use condoms at a higher rate? And it turns out condoms reduce the transmission of STDs. More people left the study than stayed in. They were given large sums of money in the form of medical care. So the equivalent of $10,000 worth of medical care, which in the United States, that would make your study unethical, but you can do it in Africa. I've heard a lot of people talk about how Africa is basically a playground for the various pharmaceutical companies because they can run all sorts of drug trials and things that would be considered illegal in the United States. And then the studies were canceled early. So they were supposed to go on longer and then they Like the results are too powerful. We just have to like get this out there. And when you start looking at the various people writing recommendations for World Health Organization and groups like that around basically running circumcision campaigns in Africa, turns out a lot of them also manufacture circumcision devices. Wouldn't you know? Go figure. Yeah. There's a lot that you can get into on the individual data there. And then of course, when you get into like the early STD studies, were they actually split test trials or were you studying populations? And so, for example, there's one study on populations for STDs and the circumcised group was devout Muslims and the intact group was Hindu truck drivers. And it turns out that truck drivers get STDs at a higher rate than the religiously devout, right? <laughs> so you, you can go through like each study has something going on there. Yeah. And then, of course, there's also the fact that can you get funding for a study that shows that something that makes money for the medical industry is actually not worthwhile, right? There's no money in a study that says your child was born perfect and is not in need of surgery. Regarding what you're saying, I'm going to read so that you don't feel compelled to go through each of the studies that you've gone over and over and over. One of the studies from South Africa was, I am a solo at all, randomized control trial, highest quality evidence within our the purview of evidence-based medicine in their discussion. You read through the study, you're like, okay, 
27% higher prevalence you know, of STIs amongst the uncircumcised males than the circumcised. And they said, they say it very clearly, both medical and traditional circumcision were independently associated with a protective effect against the risk of STI syndrome. If you were to make that your headline in the New York Times or whatever, that's pretty compelling. Two paragraphs later, they say, our data shows a huge disparity in consistent condom use between participants with STI syndrome and those without. So right off the bat, we can create a headline out of whatever we want, but without reading this, it's not even in difficult English and it's free. Just go online and find the study. They are saying, and those without STIs were using condoms. So for those out there who are not like invested in reading the literature, we're not like picking apart the studies here. Even the investigators have declared, by the way, there is this big problem with our study. We're still going to conclude what we wanted to conclude from the beginning, but we have to consider this. So when we're talking about what does the evidence show, I don't care what your doctor said. This is actually what investigation, this is what research looks like. And this one was pretty darn easy. And there are a number of studies like this. I'm just picking on this particular author. But I wanted to throw that in there. Like, we're not doing a statistical analysis or anything like that. It's very, very clear and even stated in the studies themselves that this is fraught with confounding variables. So, sorry, Brendan, just wanted to throw that in there. Oh, and in the film, that revelation comes from the person who did the study. Like, I learned that sitting across from him, interviewing him, <laughs> and he just said that, and I just thought, hold on. Do Hang you, on a second. <laughs> you just, do you just debunk your own study? <laughs> but like, who's going two paragraphs deep into a study on circumcision in Africa, right? Like, that's not the way that most people are thinking about evaluating this. And even you did your sort of, you know, informed consent spiel that doctors would give, even the language of that, there's ways of saying the same thing differently. So for example, it's very low risk. If you could say the same thing slightly differently, the chances of death are very low. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you said that to a parent, the chances of death are very low. They would say, what? What is <laughs> the chance? <laughs> Hold on. Like now I'm going to have to reconsider it. But that would be a true. The chances of death are very low. There is a chance children do die from circumcision, but it's very low. It's likely that your child won't die. We're fairly certain your kid's going to survive this. <laughs> if you were to say it's like that, the rate just you, you no one would sign up, right? We might need another day to think about this, Doc. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. Language matters quite a deal in how we counsel. So we'll talk about informed consent and how this all plays into that. But go ahead. I love how your mind works. Well, I mean, like there's a million things we could talk about around language. I mean, even the word circumcision is kind of euphemistic. If you said child genital cutting again, but circumcision has all of this language and cultural stuff around it. And I don't think people have really unpacked that. And if you were to describe it without the language, if you were to say, okay, this person wants to take your child to another room, touch his genitals, forcibly penetrate him because the foreskin's fused to the head of the glands and they have to rip that away. We actually use a probe and like kind of get in there and dig it out. It's gnarly. I think most parents would try to get that person arrested. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. just the language alone often hides a lot. Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I became really interested in, so the book that I put out, Children's Justice, is looking at children's issues through the lens of social justice. And when I was researching that, one of the things that I really came across that changed my thinking was this concept of epistemic justice. And epistemic justice is the idea that the way that knowledge is evaluated and created 
itself could be a social justice issue. And they talk a lot about this concept of epistemic injustice, who has access to knowledge, whose knowledge is seen as true. So one of the things I noticed around this issue is that basically the knowledge that is privileged around this debate is academic medical literature. Yeah. And only people who are in academics or in the medical world have access to that. In other words, I might have legitimate grievances around the issue of circumcision. I feel like that this was done to me without my consent, that if I was evaluating this, I would not have done it for myself. Mm-hmm. But what do I have to do to get access to the spaces that actually matter? Like how many people who've been affected by this can be published there? And then who runs that? Who funds that? The things that I have to do to make my voice heard on this issue, there's a significantly greater barrier for me making my voice heard than for those who are perpetrators on this issue to make their voice heard. Right. And then also then why is it that peer-reviewed academic literature is perceived as the epistemic authority. Why aren't people's feelings a part of this conversation? I have feelings about my own body and my sexuality. I have feelings about things that happened to me as a child. Shouldn't that be the thing that's privileged if this is a discussion about what happens to me and my body? Yeah. And so even the way that we look at, okay, so we can go in the academic literature and show the academic literature is really flawed, that it's false, it's biased. But why even is that something that we have to do? Why isn't it the case that it's simply someone saying it was my body? On any other issue, if someone said someone touched me as a child on my genitals in a way that I didn't consent to, and I didn't like it, any other issue, any other context, someone saying that, we would say, yes, absolutely. And that person was sexually assaulting a child and that they have every right to feel that way. If someone said someone cut off a part of my body as a child, And I wish I had that part of my body. You'd be like, wow, that sounds really awful. But this particular one has this sort of weird cultural thing that's been put around it. And when you start digging into it, it's just a cultural construct. It's just a social construct. And it's a bad one at that that's hurting people. Yeah. Well, what I always say, and this did come up in your film, which is, you know, for everybody listening, if you haven't written it down, we'll have it in the show notes, but American Circumcision, you can find it. Just search the film and you'll find it. It's streaming in a bunch of places. Circumcisionmovie.com. Circumcisionmovie.com. Thank you. This came up in your film as well. This notion. So there's been a perversion of what has been called evidence-based medicine, which is that there is this stream, a current, a narrative that's being promoted within the Western medical industrial complex that is hard to get off of. And if you want to get off it, what they say is, well, show me the evidence that doing this thing isn't helpful. That is a ass-backwards way of looking at the purpose of clinical investigation. If you're trying to deviate from some natural process, the burden of evidence is on you to demonstrate that without a doubt, this is actually better than what nature intended. It has really nothing to do with, it. does it prevent STDs or not? We never had a good reason to start doing it in the first place outside of religious pretense. So, and even that, people within the Muslim and Jewish communities, which by the way, outside of the United States, the men of the United States are the only two communities worldwide that do this routinely. There are people within those communities that are also questioning it because it doesn't seem to be doing much good. And in fact, what we'll get into next is what are some of the downsides physically and otherwise? If you want to deviate from natural childbirth, for example, 
the burden of evidence is on you to demonstrate that this intervention is actually better than the natural physiology of childbirth. When I was in residency, Brendan, I used to carry an accordion file. Actually, I still have it. This is the same one. It's a big, hefty guy. Now I have it with all, like my mortgage statements and everything. But it used to be filled with published studies from the major medical journals that supported low intervention attendance of childbirth. And when I wanted to deviate from the plan, the thing that we do, this narrative I've described, I would have the paper in my briefcase at all times. And I would say, here's why I'm doing it. It should be the opposite. We should actually be demanding that people who want to deviate from nature produce the evidence. And if they can't, you know, without a shred of a doubt, then we proceed as nature, you know, had sort of ordained for us. So you're right. These are really troubled waters. And I imagine that a lot of the flack you've received is, well, the evidence doesn't suggest that it's bad. The evidence suggests that it's good, if anything. But that's not the purpose of clinical research. That's a misuse and abuse of evidence-based medicine, in my opinion. I would go further. I think beyond the question of evidence is the question of values. In other words, evidence is actually neutral. So for example, I think that the evidence is that circumcision decreases the amount of sexual sensation that a person has. But that's only a piece of evidence against circumcision if you value sexual sensation. That's a good point. For the Victorians, they thought that sexual sensation was bad. It was immoral. It was sinful. And so reducing sexual sensation for their value system was perceived as a good thing. And for a modern value system, sexual sensation is great. We should feel everything that we can feel in that area of our life. But that's an, actually a different value system. And I think most people are really unconscious of their values. Hmm. Another thing is, you know, I think it's painful to the child. There's studies on trauma that show that childhood experiences pain during circumcision. And that pain has a lasting change on behavior, which researchers have attributed to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Again, if you go back to some of the early Victorian writings on this, they knew it was painful and they thought, well, the pain will have a salutary effect on his mind. That's the phrase that one of them uses. Interesting. <laughs> and so, you know, it's punishing the child, causing pain there because they felt like that was in some way instructing him. And I think that every piece of evidence actually needs to be evaluated through the lens of values first. So you say, okay, well, it reduces HIV, or there's a claim about reducing HIV in Africa. Like, is my child going to be having high risk HIV exposing behaviors? Like, is that something I'm planning for, for his future, for him that I'm going to, this is like, what values are we doing here as a parent? And so before the question of evidence is the question of values. And what are your values as a parent? What are your values as a human being? Do you value autonomy? Do you value the natural order? Do you value the way that your child was born? Do you want to teach them as a parent that they make their own decisions about their body? Do you want to teach them that if someone's bigger and stronger than them, that they can hold them down and touch them sexually in ways they don't consent to? Mm. That's how the world works. This is the first day of their life. This is the first lesson that they're going to experience in the world. What do you as a parent, what do you want to communicate that your values are? That's the question that comes before evidence. And by the way, this goes for the medical profession too. What are their values? So there's this idea that medicine is this sort of like objective, neutral thing. And I don't buy it. It's yeah. not neutral at all. It's not there at all. Our yeah. values in Western medicine. And so if reducing HIV rates is the highest value, that's one set of medical ethics. If do no harm first is the, you know, 
primary value that has been an oath that you've maybe taken in medical school. Like that's a different ethic. (laughs) Right. And so before we can even have a discussion of evidence, we have to have a discussion of values. By the way, this is very clear when you look at the discussion around male circumcision versus the discussion around female circumcision and female genital cutting. If you say, well, circumcised women actually have very low rates of STDs. Turns out that in situations where they have these sort of, you know, same sexual behaviors that Western women have, right? Yeah. yeah. No one would accept that argument because the understanding on women's bodies is that women have the right to make their own choices about their bodies, that consent matters, that you're not allowed to do things to women's bodies without their consent. And yet there's a different ethic and different set of values around men's bodies. And also, by the way, different set of ethics around, you know, what brown people in Africa do versus what white people in America do. And so the values have to come first. And if you have the right values, then the evidence almost, it's not that it doesn't matter, but like that determines what evidence does matter. So if the values that you're teaching as a parent are autonomy, then maybe something would be riskier for your child, but you know what? That's his choice. It's up to him to make that decision, right? The only thing I want to push back on there, because there's a lot of women listening, is that more and more women are feeling objectified and violated, even on like a modern maternity suite, whereby, you know, again, this goes back to the value system. A doctor walks in, a woman's contracting, she's in early labor, perhaps. Honey, whatever, you know, platitude we use, hey, hey, we just want to check on the baby or whatever. Maybe the husband has to hold back one of the legs. The woman might even be saying, no, 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 it's okay. Just take a deep breath, a little pressure here. Hand goes into the vagina and they describe that as having felt like, and I've heard this from women who have been raped. They're like, that felt a lot like rape. And because I was saying, no, you forced my legs back. People held me down and then you shoved a hand inside of me. It's no different, but you're right. It only matters regardless of whether or not checking the cervix is going to help you check on the baby, which generally speaking, that doesn't make any sense anyways. But that's what doctors say. Through the lens, like you said, the cultural lens of modern maternity care, especially in the United States, that is acceptable for whatever reason. And to demonstrate that it wouldn't be, now we're being confronted by the cultural lens through which evidence is being applied. So I totally understand what you're saying. This is a very valuable contribution, I think, to the conversation around consent and everything else. The phrase I've heard for that, by the way, is obstetrics violence. Yeah. Obstetric violence. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm involved in many lawsuits as the expert witness testifying on behalf of the patient in which this happens. And it's happening every day. And it's really, really sad. There's this term implied consent when you walk into the hospital. Now you're in our house. We can do whatever we want to you. And we have the cultural practices here that will justify what we did. Yeah. Yeah. Implied consent. Implied consent. I wonder what would happen if someone tried to apply that legal argument to a fraternity house. Look, you <laughs> came to the party. <laughs> yeah. What did you expect? We're Delta Kappa Frau or whatever. And this is just how we do things here. Yeah. Yeah. I it's... don't think most people when they walk into a hospital think that they're consenting to that sort of thing. Totally. But you know what? I think there is something really unhealthy in the culture of doctors in medicine. And every culture has a set of values and a process of socialization into those values. And that was another thing that came up when I was researching the stuff for my book, Children's Justice, was looking at the culture around medicine 
through the lens of social justice ideas and the concept of socialization. So social justice activists are really big on this idea that we're all socialized in these different social constructs. And, right. you know, you pick up ideas from your culture. And I think the same thing happens to doctors. Hmm. And there is a culture of compliance in the medical world. So the kind of person who becomes a doctor has to be weeded through several layers of compliance. So first you have to go to school. You have to follow all the rules there. You have to comply. You have to do what others tell you to do. Then you go to college and pre-med is a very intense major. There's a lot of work you have to do for that. And then you go to medical school and medical school is really intense and it's really hard to get in. And by the time that someone is standing in front of a child and being told you have to do this procedure, there is already a selection process to make sure the person doing that is someone who will follow orders. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So if right. you look at something like the Milgram experiment, it doesn't make sense just from that perspective because a Milgram experiment is still like, I think it's 40 or 60% of people saying no. For those who don't know about it, the Milgram experiment is a famous psychological experiment where someone is asked to give lethal shocks to someone they can't see on the other side of the room who's actually an actor pretending to get shocks to the point where it would kill them. <laughs> and a doctor, interestingly, or an authority figure is in the room telling them, oh, you need to keep going, just keep doing the test. And it's a test to see if that person will say no to an authority figure when asked to do something that would kill someone else. And if you look in the medical profession, I think that they select for people who are complying. And then the process is set up so that when someone is you know, standing in front of that child being asked to do something or asked to do any procedure, that there's no framing of consent. It's like, do this or else this sunk cost, which is you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and four years of college education, however many years of medical school yeah. and the medical license that's on the line, or else you're going to lose all of that. So there's intense pressure and there's already all the cultural conditioning that exists around circumcision. Interestingly, circumcision is something that medical residents are required to do. So a lot of parents, you would think like surgery that's going to affect someone's sexuality for the rest of their life. You'd want someone highly trained doing that, but it's actually given to medical students for practice. Not medical students, medical residents. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't know anyone who would want the residents being in charge of a surgery that's going to affect their sexuality for the rest of their life. I think any normal adult would say, can we please get the best person on this? You know, if it has to happen, right. If it has to happen. Right. Right. And so I think that this is in some way, another compliance test for people in the medical system to make sure that they'll follow orders and be a part of this system. And if you look at it, not as a, you know, through an academic, well, what are we trying to teach and learn, but through a process of socialization, through a process of like, what values are you imparting? And it sounds like you had the same experience of like, you know, if you want to push back on anything that they're asking you to do, regardless of, you know, even something as simple as like, hey, can you just have birth naturally, right? That you need to be prepared for a fight of some kind, like that's going to be a struggle. And that's not how consent of anything is supposed to work in a different culture. If someone said, Hey, I have some moral reservations, but I'm just not comfortable in the situation. Like, I don't know what the science is. I just don't feel comfortable. There's other professions and other places where like that would stop everything going on. And we would just be with the feeling until and have a conversation. Around, yeah. Yeah. Right. But medical no. culture is not that no. at all. Right. No. And I want to actually add to that because you said a lot of really important things there. 
there's very, very few things you can actually say I'm not going to do when you're in residency. Like, you know, there were some people that actually were excluded from abortions based on some religious precepts. I probably did a thousand. I mean, literally, you would go to Planned Parenthood and do 20 in a day. So if you had some reason for which you didn't want to do anything in residency, it was always going to be a big battle. The abortion thing is a little easier. Circumcision, maybe I heard about one resident who opted out. But like you said, if you're willing to have that battle, it kind of puts a target on your back, etc. And I think your explanation of this compliance training, like doctors are smart, yeah, but we are not like beautiful mind smart, most of us. Many of us are like just willing to compromise 10 years of our life to read and study and regurgitate more than the other people. That's what it is. We are disciplined. We can get it done. We're hard workers, etc. But one thing I always bring up in conversations like this, and I, this came up not too long ago in an interview with Kelly Brogan, where she and I both came from the Western model. She even has a higher pedigree than I do. I think she was at Yale or something like that for one of her steps in her training. One theme that people need to understand is that you didn't get into medicine. You didn't get through all of this by being a critical thinker. In fact, you've never been incentivized from grade school to think critically. You've been incentivized to answer the multiple choice question based on what you think the examiner wants you to say. So the actual training is how well can you read my mind and give the answer on the test? Doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. What answer does this examiner want? And when you get to the higher levels of that. We've all been really, really good at that. If you want to get to the next level, you need to be compliant with every single thing along the way. You have to be a good boy or a good little girl in order to make it to the next level. So nobody has ever incentivized a doctor to be a critical thinker, which is why we have a lack of critical thinking and a willingness to ask questions or even just be curious about certain things. And so I want to also give a little compassion to the doctors out there. I get it. And it should not be confronting whenever data is presented to you that says, hey, this thing that you've been told you have to do, you don't have to do that thing. I'm giving you permission to feel into that because that's probably not something they've been ever permitted to do, especially not incentivized to do, because that might steer you off the path and now your $470,000 of medical school debt is for naught. So doctors are in a tough position. That was part of the reason I had to leave the system altogether. Like I couldn't ask questions. I couldn't do things any differently than I was compelled to do it, in times it even coerced to do it for fear of losing all of the stuff that I'd invested for the past 15 years. So you're spot on. This is really, really helpful. I want to commend you for that because that takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of bravery too to overcome this sort of sunk cost fallacy around it. Yeah. I don't know that anyone can be in the system without participating in the harm that that system does. And so I commend you for stepping out. Thank you. <laughs> it's been very, very hard. I, just like you, get a lot of flack every single day. Well, it's also, you know, it's one of those things where, again, I think people take a sort of personal moral responsibility. And there is a personal responsibility. Like, well, I, this is the choice that I made as a doctor. But in a sense, there's a way in which those people are victims of a system too. And I hesitate to use the word victim because they are, everyone is still morally responsible for what they do. But there is a sense in which I think in their own hearts and minds, they feel like they're just doing what everyone told them was the right thing to do, like right. become a doctor and right. save lives and right. all this propaganda right. around it. And, you know, I'll make my parents proud and I'll make money. And like, 
They're just doing what everyone told them to do. The problem is, I think we've got some history at this point that shows that just doing what society tells you to do without <laughs> critically thinking about it can lead to some really bad stuff. So it's something rhymes with schmovid that I'm thinking of. But anyways, go on. <laughs> So that socialization, that system then goes towards the patients, right? And so what's considered a good patient is also someone who's compliant, right? Who just does what the doctor says. And there's an entire, I almost refer to it as a grooming system of like, well, we want you to do this and to comply with this. And that happens at every stage of the system. And so if someone just does what they're told, not just as the doctor in the system, but also as the patient in the system, that's what the system incentivizes. There's someone I know who was going the traditional medical route with their child and ended up having home birth because they basically got kicked out of it by asking too many questions of the doctor. Yeah, yeah. The, she was just a very inquisitive person. I was like, yeah. well, why are we doing that? Yeah. She's a difficult patient. That's the word. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She just like, you know, difficult patiented her way into a home birth. Yeah. So. Yeah. It happens all over maternity care. It's how many women are now seeking out midwives, but even the midwives have been incentivized to be compliant. Your license is the parameters within which you can practice. Otherwise, we're going to strip away your ability to pay your bills, to feed your family, etc. So just do it the way we tell you to do it and everything will be fine. When I left hospital-based OBGYN practice several years ago, I had the option to join the midwife community as a home birth attendant. And I was getting all of my ducks in a row and I was figuring out what it was going to cost. But then I realized, you know, licensure was on the horizon. I'm going to be competing with the Kentucky midwives. And they've worked hard for this. They've been doing great work for years. And I love the traditional midwifery model of care, but I'll never be a midwife. So while I do attend some home births, I also figured out that if I really, really believed in the midwifery model of care, let me do my best to make it possible for midwives to do the thing that midwives do so well, which is providing patient-centered, compassionate prenatal care all the way through the postpartum time period. This realization gave birth to my collaborator program. I invite midwives of all types in any state to check out my website. It's belovedholistics.com slash collaborate. What you'll find there is that I've put together a program whereby you can have me as an MD consultant to bounce anything off of any issues you have with interpreting labs, perhaps some help with clinical decision-making for your patient that just had some wacky urinalysis labs come back. At the gold level, I also will prescribe medications, order imaging, order labs. I am willing to get licensed in your state. And if you're in a state that requires a prescriptive authority or a supervising physician, there's all these different names. I'm also willing to do that at the gold level. So all of the details are available at BelovedHolistics.com. Just click the Midwives tab at the top, and you'll get to see all of the information there. And then when you're ready to enroll, you can just pop over to the website, join it. It's a monthly membership fee. You also get access to all of my summaries of ACOG's practice bulletins and also many of their committee opinions. And at the gold level, there's twice monthly peer review. You're going to have a whole community of midwives, my entire network, in order to help support you, whether you're early in practice or you've been doing this for many years. So go to BelovedHolistics.com slash collaborate or just click the midwives tab in the menu on my website and we can get started working together. All right, let's get back to my conversation now. One more other thing I want to add to this part of the conversation is that there's this sort of this halo of prestige over medicine, which I actually think the reverence of physicians over the years is actually 
for our society is a good thing because these are people that have dedicated their lives and their resources to trying to, quote, do good. On the other hand, we also have this within the medical system. We have a doctor from Harvard versus a doctor from Temple. And that doctor from Harvard is going to be able to use that title of being at Harvard to squash your opinions or your questions. In fact, you might even get kicked out for questioning the Harvard doc. And sorry to pick on Harvard. I always pick on Harvard. But the reason that that's problematic is even at our most prestigious institutions, you don't get there unless you're the most compliant and the best at answering the test questions in the way that your examiner was hoping. So we have this dilemma. There's a conflict of interest here, (laughs) so to speak, whereby we're not getting critical thinkers into this space which I think is actually why your film is quite powerful, because you're not a clinician, but you interviewed quite a number of doctors on both sides of the argument. And I thought it was very well done in that regard. It's not a very easy argument to make. It's a beneficial thing that we should keep doing for all the reasons that we've already talked about, especially whenever the people who wrote these studies themselves are kind of fucking with the data by not being clear to themselves as to what these confounding variables mean. So I do think that that's a really valuable contribution you make because it doesn't seem like there's very much curiosity or even collegial, respectful disagreement within the medical sciences. I'm speaking from my experience. You've said something in a couple interviews. Mark Groves is a friend of mine. He's actually the one that turned me on to your work. And he said, you've got to have Brendan. You've got to meet Brendan. He's like, he thinks so similarly to you and he comes from a very different angle. So I listened to your interview with Mark and you guys talked for about 10 minutes about how this might impact The challenges we're seeing within especially white males, this almost sociopathic tendency that we have in the United States. You alluded to this earlier. I might be carrying this downstream a little too far, but apart from there not being great health benefits and perhaps there's some harms in desensitizing this vital part of your makeup, let's talk a little bit about the reality of strapping a little boy down the first day of life and overpowering them and taking something from them and what that might mean? How can we conjecture what that might mean to society as a whole? So I'm going to start with just the circumcision thing and I'm going to go back in history and explain to you exactly how white people took over the world. (laughs) Because that is a topic in my book, Children's Justice. I sort of go through some of the history of how children were treated in Europe and what psychological disposition that created. Okay. But we'll just start with circumcision. So the experience that most men in America have in the beginning of their life is there's probably a hospital birth with a lot of interventions. They're immediately separated from their mother. So the mother-infant bond is broken because children biologically, that their mom is how they know they're safe. They're taken to a separate room and they have this experience of pain around their body and in newborn infant experiences time differently than we do. So a newborn infant, they don't know that this is an experience that's going to end. This could be what life is like on earth for them. They don't know. They don't know if they'll ever see their mom again. When mom leaves the room, they don't have object permanence. Maybe mom doesn't even exist anymore. And so there's this intense experience of pain. It's the most nerve dense part of a man's body. And it's their first sexual experience. So it's the first time that anyone's touching them there, anyone, other person, the first shared sexual experience. First time that anyone's physically penetrating them because that's part of this. So there's this experience. Oh, and when the, whatever iodine is rubbed on there. So someone's touching them, it feels good. And then it feels awful. And so those two experiences are linked together in their psychology, in their mind. 
And like I said, there's studies that show that this does have a change in behavior. This creates post-traumatic stress disorder. Those studies are even recognized by pro-circumcision organizations. Up until recently, people didn't even think babies felt pain. And so they would do it without anesthesia and still very frequently done without anesthesia. And anesthesia takes five minutes to kick in. And so if the doctor doesn't wait that long, then it really doesn't matter if they even did use that anesthesia. So this is the first experience of a child's life. And it imparts this experience of that if someone's bigger and stronger than them, they get to do what they want to their body, right? And socialization occurs both ways. So if someone learns that in the first day of their life, then when they're the bigger and stronger person, like say when they're an adult male, that is going to be there on an unconscious level. And if you want to teach men to respect others' boundaries, to respect their consent, this is a really bad way to start. By the way, starting this in their relationship with their mother, which is the one that all their future relationships are patterned on, right? And then, of course, American society has a whole bunch of other things. The kid then goes to daycare, separated from their family, and they're around strangers, and there's still all the problems with the school system. And the book that I wrote goes into multiple issues around how we treat children. And it's one of those things where you can't like split test a population and then like track them over the whole course of their life and give them exactly the same childhood yeah, and the exactly. same experiences. And, but you can look at the societies in the world where this is practiced, which is American society, Islam, Judaism, and certain parts of Africa, and compare that to the places in the world where it's not and what the behaviors there are and the attitudes towards women and sexuality and yeah. all of those things. And, you know, again, like every person is going to process an experience like this on the first day of their life a little differently. Hmm. But if you do this to an entire society, there may be things that look normal that are actually the result of trauma. So if all the data we had on women and women's psychology, women's sexuality, women's behaviors was actually data on circumcised women, I think people would evaluate it differently and go, okay, well, maybe this isn't accurate data. And most of the data we have, circumcision status of men is not controlled for. And by the way, I would actually even apply this question to psychological data that has nothing to do with sexuality. So like if you're just doing some sort of study where you're interviewing men about their beliefs and attitudes, you know, early life experiences are going to matter. And so someone who's been sexually abused as a child versus someone who's not, they're going to have a different psychological makeup. And there is really strong data around the idea that early childhood experiences impact us later on in life. There's the ACE study, the ACE test, which is, you know, 10 really common adverse childhood experiences, the acronym ACE. And that study looks at, you know, things like were you sexually abused as a child? Did you have a parent die? Did a parent go to prison? And then things later on in life. And it turns out those people have, you know, who've got a higher ACE score, more adverse childhood experiences have greater rates of depression, alcoholism, and even things you wouldn't expect like higher rates of cancer. Like why would someone who is sexually abused as a child be more likely to get cancer? It's like, well, if you believe there's a mind body link, that people who feel good generally are going to have different health than people who maybe have had different feelings or different experiences. It makes sense, but like it's things that you wouldn't expect like that of higher rates of disease. And so that sort of thing, if holding down a child and ripping their genitals off is a negative form of sexual assault, then you could look at the, all the things the ACE test predicts and say, maybe there's higher changes there. But again, like we're dealing with psychology and I don't think that human beings, the way that we think 
is as standardized or the way that we like add meaning to our experiences. I don't think that that can be evaluated this, the way that medical science would like to evaluate data. And it is going to be a little different person to person. Just to add to that, a randomized controlled trial is best done when we've eliminated all of the confounding variables. Which is impossible on this, yeah. Which is impossible, especially within the human psyche. So now I said I would talk about, you know, like basically, you know, you made because you brought up the subject of white males, which is a particular group. If you look at what was going on in Europe at the time that, you know, all of the things that Western society and white males in particular get blamed for things like colonialism and slavery childhood in europe at that time had a wet nurse system and so when a child was born very similar to our current day they were separated from their mother they were sometimes taken two three hours away to a wet nurse because women didn't actually breastfeed their own babies they sort of saw children as a job you could outsource so they would send the child to a wet nurse the wet nurse would essentially raise the child and parents might not even see their own children until they were five or six years old. And that's why the infant mortality rate was so high in Europe at that time. Because if you're sending a child two to three hours away to a professional, essentially a daycare raising them. And because of the economics of them, probably raising 20 children at once, right? There's not individual attention going on. Like, of course, a few of them are going to die in that process. Of course, you know, a newborn infant who's being given to a stranger they don't know what's going on with this stranger. It's like, you see those stories about, you know, daycares hurting children, which is extremely common. And this is like, you know, in the 1500s in Europe, like, it's not like there's going to be a nanny cam there checking up on them. Right. <laughs> and, oh, and beating children and sexually abusing children. These are all, you know, normal things in, in the middle ages, like touching a child's channels was seen as like a funny joke. Basically there's <laughs> historical stuff around that too. The children go off to these wet nurses and then they go to boarding schools, the elite ones. This is much more commonly elite because if you're a rich person, you can afford to pay someone else to raise your child. And maybe they're raising only a few children because you're paying them more or they're like a more greater professional, but it's still a stranger raising a child who doesn't love them and is not their parent. Then they go to a boarding school. Boarding schools are an intense environment. I interviewed someone on my own podcast who described, you know, he wrote some books on essentially boarding school trauma and about how, you know, you're in this environment where there's, the boarding schools essentially have these intense standards and you have to learn how to behave in a certain way. And if you don't, you know, especially at the time, there'd be corporal punishment. So children were essentially treated in Europe, you know, in the era before colonialism and slavery as a product that you would essentially, you make the child and you give it to a professional and the professional treats them as a product and then presents you with the child when they're old enough. And you might not actually get to know them until they're an adult, but children were treated then as a product and as a resource that could be exploited. So you take the child and you turn them into whatever you want, right? So what do these children do when they're adults? Well, you know, there's a saying, what we do to children, they'll do to the world. And so these children who were treated as a resource to be exploited, went out and treated indigenous cultures as a resource to be exploited. So they would show up and they would, you know, and by the way, if you're disconnected from parts of yourself, people who are disconnected from parts of themselves project those parts in other people. So they're like, wow, these native savages, they're so in touch with their feelings, right? Like they're such an emotional culture. It's like, no, they're just abused children who are disconnected from their feelings and projecting it onto others, right? And so they show up and they begin treating the local populations the way they were treated as children, as a resource to be exploited. And, you know, if you look at things like colonialism and slavery, they're awful, but they're not a lot worse than what childhood in Europe was like 
for the people who enacted those systems. Just a projection of this horrible yeah. state of affairs and in so Europe. I think that if you look at history through the lens of what were children at the time experiencing right before these events, it makes a lot more sense. Oh, and by the way, as this system starts to change and parents begin raising their own children at higher rates and things like corporal punishment or physical punishment as like a, something that the courts would enact. So it would be very common in Europe for courts to say like, the punishment for this is we're going to put you on the rack for a certain amount of time. As that starts to change and as children start having just not even less, you know, we would still consider it abusive by today's standards, but they're being raised by their own parents. All of a sudden, these things like individual rights start becoming very popular in Europe. And there's like this big philosophical intellectual shift. That's not the only factor, but I can't help but look at that and go, okay, well, when, you know, this system, one system was of childhood was really popular. You got one set of people. And when a different system of childhood began to take hold, there was a different set. And by the way, look at cultural attitudes now among people who are, have experienced things like peaceful parenting versus those who've had very abusive childhoods. Yeah, You can even see now, I think that a lot of the system that existed then exists now in certain ways, in the sense that, you know, we might not send them off to a wet nurse, but they're still separated birth through hospital. And there's still things like daycare and professionals who people outsource the raising of their children to. And all of that has an impact on the feelings of the child. And very often when people evaluate this, they're evaluating it through the lens of like, intellectual outcomes. You know, there's a saying that what can be measured is what's treated. I'm blanking on the exact phrase, but basically what can be measured is often what's treated as important. And it's very hard to measure the feelings of a child. And so that often is not the thing that's treated as most important when it actually is the most important thing, because that's the thing that child's going to carry with them for the rest of their life. Right. And so the thesis of my work is that I think if we can change the way that children are raised, and this to me you know, the issue of genital cutting is one of the most obvious and egregious issues. And it's so easy to change too. Like just baby comes out and then don't. Like, don't, don't do that's it. it. It's, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, there's other things where you might have to like change people's mindset and the way that they interact with kids. But like, this is a pretty simple one. Yeah. But my thesis is that if we can change the way that children are raised, everything else in society changes. And maybe there's still problems, but at least the people working on those problems are free from trauma and coming from a different place and communicating differently and having different attitudes about how they form relationships and interact with each other. And all of that's going to be easier with people who are healthy and free from trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. I know. I just, I know it's amazing. European history for you there. So wow, it's now I, I do quite a bit of, I'm kind of a history guy myself. I did this episode, it was episode 72. You'd probably really like it given what you've just described, but it talks about, it's a briefish history of Western medicine, witches and women healers. And it covers the whole spectrum, the changing cosmologies, the shifting power dynamics amongst church and state and how women who were caring for women were slowly subjugated to this lesser role. And as we saw women devalued in the societies, the societies naturally, you know, we're on the brink of catastrophe over and over and over again. And that snippet of history, which I believe you delivered quite elegantly, really fits into that as well. You know, we see many things from the lens of Europeans because many of us are European by lineage. But when we take a big step back and we look at the role of colonialism and slavery and all these other things, these are projections from 
a pretty hostile environment to be alive in the, let's say, before the 17th century. I mean, we have thousands of years preceding that, whereby we've developed these conditioned patterns of behavior and these accepted ways of being that perhaps never served us. But now we have the luxury of looking back into history and asking, is there something about this ridiculous tendency for a group of Europeans to go into a place and just slaughter them physically, culturally, and otherwise in order to impose some value system? Like That is, of course, the big question about the role of European imperialism in the world. And of course, I know what you're not saying is it's just circumcision, but I think circumcision fits nicely into this. This is not an isolated thing. I do think that when we consider the rates of depression, the rates of suicide, anxiety, some of these, like I said, sociopathic tendencies of shooting up schools and everything, like nobody's really asking about the why. Like, why are people in the United States so deranged, it seems? And they does happen to be white men. This is not a conversation around like shame on the white people. It's just, let's attempt to broaden our understanding of what maybe is happening to kids and to families from a very, very early age that could explain some of the tensions we're experiencing in our nation that we don't see in many other nations that are far less wealthy than we are. So I do appreciate kind of weaving this in because I think that the bigger conversation is where people like you and I like to live. And without taking in the broader historical and cultural context, how can we really make sense of anything? We end up just in this exact situation that I described, where we have to use evidence to support not doing something that would otherwise be completely natural. With all of this, it requires you to hold two seemingly contradictory, but actually complementary truths. One, that there's a group of people doing harm in the world. And second, that they're doing that because they've experienced trauma and been harmed. And both of those things can be true. It can be true that the harm that they're doing is something that should stop right? and that they should be held accountable for, and that it's coming from trauma that needs healing. Yeah. Like yeah. both of those things can be true. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that we do owe it to everybody. And by the way, anybody who's listening, like this is not a matter of like shaming and blaming. If you've been circumcised, like it's okay. Like it's something that happened. Like we can move forward. This applies to every group too. Like even, you know, the medical profession for someone, like I can see the psychology of wanting approval and wanting to be good and trusting others who've told you that this is the right thing to do. I see that. And like, they're both there. There's a whole other road I could go down there, but I want to see where you want to go with this. Where I want to go is that when we are presented with, you know, this interview, or you go and watch Brendan's film or read his books or whatever, it's okay to say that, wow, I've been doing it this way. And to stop, to be contemplative, to maybe have some conversation, and then to change your practice. The opposite, I think, tends to happen within my community at large, which is that somebody's presented with information about home birth. And they're like, but home birth isn't safe. And I'm like, well, listen, we had a home birth. That's heresy from an OBGYN. We had a home birth. It was great. It was the best experience of my life. Hearing that doctor or whoever, it's not an attack on your identity or how you've shown up in the world. You have done everything in your power to get to where you are now. It is not a shameful thing. It does not reflect poorly on you if you say, you know what? I think I kind of agree with this guy, Brendan and Nathan. I really think this is interesting. Perhaps we shouldn't be doing circumcisions routinely. Just being able to ask that question is actually a sign of adulthood. 
it's a sign that you are able to take responsibility and say, you know what? I was wrong. You know what? We can do things differently. And that's okay. We have to also stop, you know, he's a flip-flopper. Like we have to stop with that language. If you're hearing this and you're thoughtful about it, let's have more conversation. I think that that's really what I wanted to impress upon people is that I hear you. You have all of these reasons that we've illustrated that this is hard for you to wrap your head around. Maybe you have kids and you had them circumcised. It's not a matter of feeling bad. It's just, hey, we're all in this together. Can we change this practice for the betterment of little boys in society at large? Identity is a prison. So when someone says that they are something, if I wanted to get someone to do a whole bunch of things for me, and I said, you know, I want this list of this, 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 we would have 20 different discussions on each of those ideas, right? But if you give someone an identity, you can get them to do stuff that they didn't actually agree to. Right. So if I wanted you to go to war and like die in war, we'd have a discussion about, is the war good? Is the da, da, da. If I say that you're a man, right? You believe that you're a man and real men have courage. Men have courage. Men are willing to do what's right. I start defining that identity, right? And men are willing to do what's right and they have courage and men are willing to do what they need to protect their country. You want to protect your family, don't you? Right. And you have courage. <laughs> now I've constructed this like social construction of what it means to be a man. And if you don't do what I want, then you're not a man anymore. I learned this concept by reading someone who was talking about kink relationships. I'm going to, once Love again, it. you know, <laughs> go in a strange direction. But there was someone talking about kink relationships who actually said, you know, if you want someone to do something, and they were talking about like BDSM and things like that, just give them a role. And so if he said, if you give them a role of like, oh, I'm looking for a pet and a pet loves their master and all these things then it answers a bunch of questions. And so if someone says, well, can I have dinner with you? It's like, I don't know, do pets eat at the table? They were talking about this as a way to like get people to do things that they would want in a relationship. If you were trying to convince your partner to do that, by the way, it'd probably be a bit of a discussion. But if they've already agreed to the role, it's a different discussion. And what I glean from this, like that non-kink roles and all forms of identity kind of work this way. Oh, are you a Christian? Well, a real Christian does this. Are you a man? A real man does this. Are you a doctor? Well, a doctor practices the highest standard, evidence-based medicine. And what are we defining evidence-based medicine as? Well, it's all the stuff in the academic literature. And what's in the academic literature? Well, the people who could afford to be in the academic literature who had the privilege and the ability and the access to that literature. Essentially, like if you want to be this role, which we've defined as a good person, then you have to obey what we're telling you to do. And that's why I say that identity is a prison because if you were to evaluate every claim individually, then maybe you'd accept some, maybe you wouldn't accept others. But by creating an identity, it's almost like a pill that someone swallows like 20 or 30 or even hundreds of different beliefs and yeah, ideas yeah, and actions yeah. they're supposed to take. And if you were to evaluate them individually, it's like, well, maybe I don't want those. Like, okay, I like the ones about being smart and caring for patients and wanting to help and heal people. Those are good. There's a couple other things that you threw in here that maybe I don't want to do, right? <laughs> it's true of all identities. So sure. I say that, you know, you're a man and there's an identity around being a man. Well, I like the ones that are about strength. I like the ones that are about caring for others and wanting to protect them. This one where I have to go to war. I got some questions about that <laughs> one, you know, like, is this a good war? Is this actually protecting people? Do I have to? What about the people I'm supposed to kill? Are we protecting yeah. those people? Yeah. You know, there's all these yeah. other questions, right? And this, by the way, circumcision is often treated as an identity. And one of the things I talk about is people 
talk about circumcision. If you were to say that any other surgery, you wouldn't say like, I am shoulder surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Shoulder surgery was something that I had. It's something I experienced. You like walk into the frat house and you're like, who doesn't have an appendix? Yeah. No appendix party. Yeah. (laughs) But people say I am circumcised. It becomes a part of their identity. And so when someone says that maybe it's not a good thing, all the triggers that get brought up around identity of the same, if you were to tell them that their race wasn't okay or their gender wasn't. And it's like, oh, how dare you criticize that? But it's not actually a part of their identity. It's something that someone did to them. It's an imposed identity. And all of the various things that people get triggers around this, I think are identity related. And by the way, religion and culture and race of, oh, I have to do this because I'm Jewish or because I'm Muslim. Like, you know, there might be some things in that identity that maybe that person likes, but also they've sort of swallowed it whole as a pill essentially. And like, oh, you have to do this because, and it's the same logic of like, well, do pets eat at the table, right? Like, well, you've agreed to this role and now you have to do what I tell you to, as opposed to like, okay, I liked this one part that was good. And I don't want the other part. I still want to use a fork. It's convenient. (laughs) Yeah. And so there's, you have to essentially deconstruct the identity in order to actually evaluate it. And with most of them, it's easier to just leave. So like you said, with the medical system, like you would have to deconstruct like, okay, is this actually doing no harm? What does it mean to heal people? What is actually our role as doctors? And for most people, it's easier to just like cough up the pill and just leave that identity and say, well, I'm not going to be that if that's what you think this is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are people like me, like we were talking about my journey here. For me, it's like, People think that because, let's say that I advocate against circumcision, that I think the earth is flat or something. Like they've created this other false identity and they love to put you right. in one of these boxes. So for to be a doctor, right. to go against anything that typical OBGYNs do, that we train to do, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And all that I'm saying is, listen, there's a lot of good things that doctors do. There's a lot of good things hospitals do. I generally don't go to the hospital because I take care of myself, but also... I kind of know what that means. I know that doctors are not picking and choosing how they're practicing medicine based on cultural bias, the culture of the hospital, their colleagues, whatever is expected of them. But I think you're hitting on a really important point here. And if somebody's out there listening and you feel like your identity is being kind of challenged here, you're a person. Like you've got the ability to say, you know what, I'll take a little bit of this and a little less of this, and you can create your own practice. Like it is possible. But it is very hard for the reasons that you're describing. And I think a part of that is cognitive dissonance. A lot of other people around them may feel the same way, but they haven't been guided by their soul. They just kind of have gotten sort of caught in this current that I'm expected to do these things. And like you said, they've already shown that they're great at complying. So I'm just going to keep riding this stream because it served me this well, you know, this far. I don't want to rattle the cage. And we need a little bit more willingness perhaps to just, I don't know, be a little bit more thoughtful about some of these interventions that we're recommending. By the way, this is why you guessed at the beginning with the hardest part challenge on this issue is it's that we get into all this stuff too. And so when people are like, well, what are the risks and the benefits? And I'm like, let me deconstruct all of language in the way that you <laughs> yeah, think about exactly. identity. And I'm yeah. also going to explain to you what's been going on with trauma in the world since at least 500 years ago. And, but I think that that's where the interesting stuff is. When it comes to identity, you know, there's a construction of an identity for someone, and there's also a construction of the identity of what it would mean if they weren't that person. So, like, oh, if you don't go off and fight in the war, 
what does that mean? Does it mean you're not a real man? Does it mean you're a coward or a sissy or whatever this is? And okay, if you're not practicing evidence-based medicine, what's the identity then? Is it like that you're some weird new ager or you're a conspiracy theorist? Is it woo-woo? And all of those are a trap too. And by the way, I've seen people, you know, when they don't want to participate in the system, they will also just adopt the identity that the system tells them they're not supposed to adopt. So if they don't want to be a part of the system, then it's like, okay, well, I'll be an edgelord troll <laughs> conspiracy theorist. You know, like they'll willingly adopt that identity as a way to avoid any participation in the system because they know that there's things in the system that are bad and wrong. And I think that that's a trap too, because if someone is living in reaction or rebellion to a system, they're still making their decisions based on what the system thinks and believes and wants them to do, as opposed to just making the decision based on their true self, on who they actually are. And so there's a way in which if you are wanting to think for yourself, if you're wanting to be authentic, if you're wanting to embody and project the truth of who you are, that it's actually very simple. You just do that. And the challenge is all the things that you're not doing. They're not mm. living in reaction to the mm. system. They're not mm -hmm. protesting. They're not complying. It's just, I'm just, and it's the same when we were talking about home birth. Like that's actually really simple. It's you have a baby at home. That's it. That's <laughs> it's all not you gotta do, right? Science. Yeah. Like it's actually yeah. very easy to avoid this yeah. system of general cutting. Like just don't, you just don't participate in it. And all of the things around identity and language are like, they're ways of the system just sort of trying to sneak into your life, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you become aware of them, then that's it. You can just let go of them. They're that simple. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, I could talk to you for hours, Brendan. You're so thoughtful about these things. And I have to say, it is very validating to hear somebody like you speak who's looking inward. It's like, I don't have any skin in this game. <laughs> poor, maybe poor choice of words. I don't have any skin in this game. I'm just observing from the outside as a consumer of healthcare. You've also come to these same realizations. And I also find it very valuable that you do hold a lot of compassion. You've actually tried to understand how people have gotten to these immovable states. One thing I kind of want to say in wrapping up is that when we say consensus in the world of the medical sciences, consensus does not belong in evidence-based medicine. There's really not a thing as consensus because... You might say the consensus is that home birth is unsafe. Well, tell that to my wife who just had a beautiful home birth, you know, almost a year ago now. It's a part of the conversation and it's nice language to be able to consolidate all of this into one headline and say, doctors agree that blah, 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 blah. But we need to go beyond that. We need to be willing to look inward into, you know, <laughs> one thing that I always tell people is when you're trained as a surgeon, as a resident, as a doctor, you are never, ever going to say, I don't know, I made a mistake, or I want to get better, or whatever. I mean, you just don't use that language, because you have to kind of fake it the entire time, lest you go on probation. I was on probation two or three times in residency because of the stuff that we've talked about, and they want you to comply. They're going to force you to comply, and if you're not going to comply, they just boot you, and then you're stuck in the dust. But when we are training surgeons to not be willing to admit, I don't know, I made a mistake, etc. We end up conditioning these medical professionals to just not feel like it would be even appropriate to open this box of this can of worms. So those are all really important things to say if you've ever been in a relationship, by the way. These are like <laughs> yeah, things right. that as a human being, it's good to be able to say. Well, you know, I 
hate to pick on doctors even more than I have, but there was this one event at the end of my residency where I was finishing residency and there was incoming interns in their first year. And at this party, it was like, we called it the spring fling or something like that, but it was basically ushering in the new and saying goodbye to the graduating, you know, fourth year residents who were going to go off and practice. And while I was there, there was a younger resident who brought a friend because they weren't partnered up and they had a friend who came with them as their like plus one. And this woman was a lawyer and I saw her kind of standing alone and my wife was talking to somebody. So I like went over and said, Hey, how do you know? You know, who do you know here? How are you having fun or whatever? And she said, you know, I'm not really having fun. (laughs) She said, it's really surprising. And I got to know that she's a lawyer and what she's like, it's surprising that like you guys don't have a lot to talk about apart from what you're doing at work. She's like, you're taking care of people. So I would just expect you guys would be like, kind of like, you would have these incredible conversations going on. Like doctors are so exciting. And she's like, it's kind of boring. And I asked her to be frank with me. I was like, tell me a little bit more, you know? And she said, as a lawyer, I have to work with people. I have to know their story. I have to get to know how they show up in the world. What is their cultural belief system? What is all of this? And in order to do that and represent them in court, I have to understand so many layers of society. I have to be up to date with pop culture. I may not even care about football, but my client is a really big football fan. So that's a way that we start to build this chemistry. And doctors don't do that well. There is this strange element of what draws people into medicine that I don't fully understand, but it does make it hard to have frank conversations about things as well. I've got my lane, I stay in my lane, and that's just what I do. Yeah. Well, what you're describing requires the ability to be wrong. Right. I went to art school and, you know, I've been around artistic people and actors and film and things like that. And that is a constant process of being wrong. It actually requires you to take massive risks and constantly mess up and then, you know, fix it in the edit, right? Just try things and see if they work. And that is not the attitude of medicine or schooling. It's that you need to have the right answer. And if you don't have the right answer the first time, then you don't get an A. Yeah. Yeah. So it engenders a different way of relating to the world. And one of the things you, you brought up is that, you know, the idea that the lawyer has to sort of understand the person they're working with and the doctor often doesn't. And I think that that is inherent to the way that Western medicine views the body. Have you read Michel Foucault, the French philosopher and probably evil pervert? Have you read his book, The Birth of the Clinic? No, I haven't. So it's a history of medicine. For reference, Michel Foucault is considered hugely influential in social justice circles. If you look at like modern queer theory and gender ideology, it's like just his stuff applied to gender. If you look at critical race theory, it's kind of just his stuff applied to race. Yeah. But the thing that he did write about was the medical system. So I went back to his writings for the clinic and he talks about this idea of the medical gaze. He describes how when Western doctors look at a person or an issue, in a holistic perspective, you look at the whole body, like maybe what they're feeling or what they're eating or, you know, maybe one part of the body is affecting another. And so you'd ask, what's wrong with this person? Like, what is the issue? And the way that Western medicine views things is through what he calls the medical gaze, that they're looking at individual parts of a person. So not what's wrong with this person, but what's wrong with their lungs or what's wrong with their spleen or in the case of circumcision, what's wrong with their foreskin, right? And that you look at that one part of the body in isolation and that the person is removed. It's a dehumanizing gaze because you're not seeing the person, you're seeing an individual body part. 
And I don't think that circumcision could exist without this medical gaze of like, oh, if you talk to doctors about circumcision, they say that they're operating on the foreskin or mm -hmm. the penis, mm -hmm. not the child, right? right? They're not touching a child. Right. They're touching right. this part of the body. And they're not looking at what the impact will be later on. They're like this moment, this particular thing, it's a very singularly focused gaze. And so I think that's why even socially, you mentioned your, you know, the doctors this person was talking to didn't have a lot to talk about outside their work because they weren't interacting with people. They were interacting with body parts, essentially. They were viewing people through this gaze that fragments them, that doesn't see the whole person, doesn't have a holistic perspective, has a very singular body part perspective. And that is often actually what blinds them to the harm. So if that doctor comes in, the woman giving birth, he's not interacting with a woman. Because if you as an adult see a naked woman in a vulnerable position, any human being is going to interact with that differently than interacting with the cervix, right? Well, it's not a woman, it's a cervix. And he's checking the cervix. And every piece of Western medicine has this aspect to it. And I feel like circumcision is in some way the natural outcome of this way of viewing people because you know, the medical gaze looks at people in a fragmented way as these individual body parts. And so that way of viewing people is eventually going to lead to physical fragmentation. Like we're not removing part of a person, we're removing the tonsils, yeah. the appendix, right. the foreskin. Right. Like right. this is not a part of a human being being removed. This is an organ and it's being viewed individually rather than as a part of a whole. And so all of medicine needs to change to this holistic view and if they did, these problems would change because you couldn't keep fragmenting human bodies and human people while viewing them as whole people and whole human beings. So if the perspective changes, all this other stuff shifts too. Yeah. And I mean, if we're going to pay homage to some of the late philosophers, you know, we have Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes around the same time, they were both, you know, philosophizing around our role here in the world. And it wasn't until Descartes, I think therefore I am, was what Descartes, you know, famous adage was, it wasn't until he helped to clarify how the world can only be understood through mathematical equations. And Francis Bacon, of course, philosophized, <laughs> I don't even know if that's a word, that our five senses are the most likely to provide erroneous results if we're using them in our observations. So between the two of these, it also gave us the prerequisites to be able to dissect into the human body. So the church until then, you know, you would have been compelled as a physician to operate without knowing what's inside the body because you may disrupt the soul. Well, now the soul and the mind are separate from the body. We can reduce everything through this Cartesian lens to a meat suit and if each specialist does their job and polishes up the carburetor and everything else like a car, you're going to be just fine. Obviously, that's not serving us. And with circumcision, beyond even just looking at the whole person, we also have to consider the mental, emotional, and spiritual, these energetic bodies that play in. And for those of you who are married to Western medicine, Ayurvedic medicine is 16,000 years old, Chinese medicine, 6,000 years old, predating our modern, you know, advanced medicine by millennia. And there's a lot we can learn from that. And that's the reason that salutogenic models, anthroposophic medicine is my third board certification that I'm working on now. It's a much gentler approach. It's considering the whole person. And they're actually not just the, the person, but also the context, the environment that this person is in. That is the only way I think that we're going to change the Western medical model, this 
we've hit a dead end. And by throwing more of the same at this problem, it doesn't seem like it's going to get us anywhere. What you've said, Brendan, the way you speak about these topics is such a breath of fresh air. I don't know if I've ever really met somebody like you (laughs) because you're not even a clinician, but you have this sensibility to take from these historical sort of precepts we have about these different practices and deconstruct it in such an elegant way. I don't have a final question. I feel like this was a really, really lovely conversation. Anything else you want to share that's maybe come up since you've released your film, your new book? And of course, I certainly want you to tell everybody how they can find your work. Well, there's a saying that all problems require a shift in consciousness. So the problem cannot be solved at the level of consciousness that created it. And that's why when people try to engage at the sort of consciousness of the medical model of what are the risks and the benefits, I end up just chunking up into things like, you know, history and values and how we actually view and interact with people. And I think part of the reason you you might not have a final question is that there's no finality to that process. There's <laughs> always a higher level of consciousness. We could always go deeper. We could always explore further. And so there's a saying that art is never finished, only abandoned. <laughs> and so at some point, at some point we have to move on. <laughs> But you're right, it could continue indefinitely. So if you want to continue, circumcisionmovie.com is where you can watch my film. I am at BD Murata, which is just my initials and my last name on all the social media platforms, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, which I almost never use, all the different places. And I have my own podcast, The Brennan Murata Show. It's called that because I wanted to do whatever random topic came into my head and not have a theme at all. So if people ask me what's the show about, and I say, well, it's what about whatever I feel like making it about (laughs) and whoever I want to talk to, this is not a good way to market a podcast, but it's more fun for me that way. So that's what I'm doing. Keep it fun. That's the only way is make it fun. (laughs) It's hard work otherwise. Oh, I have a sub stack. So hegemonmedia.com. Right now I'm writing there mostly about social justice stuff as it relates to the latest book. And that's a whole other topic. I've touched on some of it and I love combining ideas. So you notice that I'm drawing from various different things and the book children's justice came out of that, of going, okay, well, there's all these movements that are very successful approaching things through a social justice lens and the movements that I was a part of were approaching things very much for a human rights lens what would it look like if I applied this different lens and this whole other picture came into view and you can read the book if you want to know what that picture is. And by the time this interview is out, I might have published a book of AI art, which is completely unrelated to everything that we've talked about (laughs) has nothing to do with any of that, but is really fun for me. And so speaking of keeping it fun, that's a thing that I'm doing, but yeah, just follow me at BD Murata on all the platforms and you'll, I'm constantly doing things. Who knows what will be on by then? Yeah, you just let me know. When we have the episode drop, we'll include all of the new stuff and whatever unreasonable machinations come up in the great mind of Brendan Murata. Thank you so much for coming in and just giving me so much of your time, Brendan. One thing I did want to add about what you just described about combining, which what you do so well is synthesizing information and contextually observing what other disciplines are doing, and then you synthesize it into a more cohesive, maybe greater framework for us to actually you know, move forward. I think that as a final thought, I think that that is probably the biggest 
problem that we're seeing right now is that the ecologists, the political scientists, the policymakers, whatever, the doctors, they're all siloed off. They all think they have the greatest thing to figure out. But if we could all just do what you do, which is to synthesize these different disciplines into a more grand unified to framework. To take a more holistic view? Perhaps. You might, you might say podcast. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you might say that. So yes. So thank you, Brendan. And I'm sure we'll be in touch going forward. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't checked out my website, go to belovedholistics.com. Nothing on the show is medical advice, but you certainly can get some help, whether you're a person looking for a birth worker or a holistic gynecologist, or if you're a midwife or other type of birth worker or healthcare professional that wants to have me in your corner, you can find all of that there. You can also find information about my new PRP fertility program that's all available at belovedholistics.com. If anything in this show touched you in some way, if you went back and re-listened to something, share this episode. Give the gift of the Holistic of a Joanne podcast to the people in your life, to your clients, to your family, your friends, your colleagues. Let's get these messages out there. This conversation, like every conversation, I only do it because I think it's important for the community. You can also go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Give me a five-star review. Believe it or not, it really matters. And then lastly, support our sponsors. The sponsors make it possible to put out this high-quality content. And as I'm increasing my audio and my video and my different platforms and rebranding and rebuilding, that costs money. My sponsors enable that to happen. I also have an online shop with not only the sponsors discount codes listed, but a wide variety of other products that are going to make you and your family as healthy and vital as possible. Again, I'm Nathan Riley. Thank you so much for listening in to the Holistic Obituary Podcast. We'll see you next week. Da da